Entry 4 The Reaper Cometh Everything changed on April the 4th. I was awoken in the middle of the night by a strong, sharp jolt, the kind that I only had been subjected to by the harshness of the defibrillator. I sat up in bed, breathing hard. There was a dull ache in the center of my chest and I clutched at it with my hand. It was then that I heard the sudden whisper, a murmur that told me to follow through on my bargain. It was the voice of Castor, the beast. Unseen as he might have been, gave me explicit instructions on what to do, hissing in my ear with the same lethal charm that he had used in my dream, putting me into the same befuddled state that had led me to make a deal. Without so much as a stirring from Diane, I slipped on my coat and wriggled into my shoes. The lingering presence of the beast stayed there the whole time, emanating an air of impatience. For whatever reason, he couldn't wait to see the events that were sure to unfold shortly. Before I continue with the events that follow, I just want to clarify to Diane that I meant nothing against her when doing this. I beg of her understanding that I had to do what I had to do for her own well-being. Terrible acts as they might have been. I was given absolutely no choice. I couldn't control what I was doing on that night, nor was I myself on the nights when I murdered Marianne, Sally, or Amber, or all of whom you will hear more about later. I was being mastered by the hands of a momentous evildoer, and there was nothing I could do but follow through with the coerced actions presented to me. An hour and a half later, I left my home, and I was picking up a prostitute on one of the more unfavorable streets of urban Raleigh. It hadn't been all too difficult. I just drove my car slowly around the city, observing the people walking along the sidewalk. When the shorts from the young females got short enough and the outfits revealing enough, I had parked my car along the road and got out and began to walk. I was looking for someone special tonight, guided by the same force that had taken me to the axe in the woods. I would know her when I saw her. In less than five minutes, I found her. In my inebriated days, I walked up to her, saying, Hello, ma'am. You're looking quite lovely tonight. Can I interest you in doing something special just between the two of us? This girl, whom I am soon to know as Colleen Simpson, let out a bubbly laugh, took my hand in hers, and promptly began to kiss my fingertips. She appeared to be in her early 20s, and I would have probably found her attractive had she not been a prostitute. She had blonde hair that I could tell was bleached, and her eyes were a gorgeous green that were radiant in the streetlights. She smiled, showing teeth that were surprisingly clean before I remembered that I needed to make an attempt to talk to her. When I did... I was amazed as to how easy it was to lure her into my car. It was, to use an old axiom, as easy as taking candy from a baby. Then again, this was the girl who carried on only for money, and who was desperate enough to have sex with men that she had never met before. As I began to drive, I said to her that I knew a place, the best place, then we could do it. She responded in the most flirtatious of manners. As her talk got dirtier and dirtier, my hands tightened on the steering wheel. 
making the dried mud under my fingernails dig into my flesh and causing the grime to stand out, black against white. Relaxation flowed over me as Castor employed his techniques. Everything was going to be fine. As a matter of fact, this could even be a little enjoyable. I eventually parked on the side of the sidewalk by the all-but-deserted warehouse district that lay on the outskirts of Raleigh. Colleen was incredulous, but not in a demeaning way at all. I can't believe this is the place you were talking about, she laughed. I do hope that you realize we're breaking the law in more ways than one. <laughs> Trust me, I'm more than aware of that. I responded cheerfully, and with that, I strode up to the nearest warehouse. The lock was broken, as I had previously made sure of this. I opened the door and held it for Colleen to walk in, perfecting the guise of my gentlemanly composure. I laid Colleen out on the concrete floor, caressing her body, and then slowly, I undid the button of her leather pants and slid the zipper down. She smiled prematurely beginning to fake her pleasure as I slipped the slacks off bit by bit, revealing long legs that were bleached from lack of sunlight. Then I was reaching upwards, keeping my hands on her body the entire time. My fingers skated against her warm flesh until I had a bump in the road that could only be her jean jacket. Taking my time, I loosen the buttons until I am able to gently pull it off with the greatest of care. I felt my fingers reaching for my belt, and in a moment's notice it was off. I took the belt and wrapped it around Colleen's head, restricting her eyesight. She let me do all of this, with a sleepy smile on her face the entire time. I stood up, telling her that I was going to get undressed and to not move. Then I reached over to one of my many rakes of supplies that were lying nearby and drew from between two cardboard boxes the axe that I had concealed there earlier. The moment I touched the smooth wooden handle of the axe, everything became even more exciting for me, and Castor's stone perspective intensified. My breathing deepened and my heart began to pound with sweat and anticipation. My fingers were white on the handle of the axe, and once again, the dirt stood up for my nails dirt that had entrenched itself when I had dug up the axe no less than an hour ago. Colleen was beginning to get impatient. She was fidgeting uncomfortably on the floor, asking what was taking so long. I knew that I had to act soon, and fast. With eagerness swelling in my body and glee in my heart, I stepped forward, raising the axe high over my head. Colleen was starting to reach for the belt that was binding her. With euphoria taking over my senses, I swung. The metal sunk deep into the space between Colleen's breasts. I felt the warm splatter all over my face, which was followed by short screams that were muffled as gore filled her mouth. I yanked the axe out of her soft, pale flesh before rearing up and once again striking metal against tissue. I was exhilarated by the feeling of the bloodthirsty blade sinking deep into her stomach. I did this. Again, and again, for what must have been several full minutes, with the rising and falling strokes of the axe getting harder each time. My morbid determination energized by a ghoulish desire to finish the job, 
The whole time I was doing it, I heard the most terrible, ragged breathing. I thought it was Colleen, still alive through all the wounds that I had inflicted, perhaps desperately trying to crawl away with the remaining vigor she possessed. It was only later that I realized that these sounds were coming from me. Everything was becoming a blur. Things seemed to be moving faster, and I could only hack, chop, and cut with the axe again and again, her insides getting creamier each time. Then, there was a sharp clang of my axe as it struck concrete. In disbelief, I looked down upon what was left of the wasted body of Colleen. All traces of loveliness she once knew were gone, completely obliterated by my ferocity. I had very nearly torn her in half. The blood ran everywhere. It was all over me. It had doused the floor in a crimson coating and given nearby storage shelves a sudden shower of cardinal fluid. Bits and pieces of severed spinal cord and hacked intestines flowed in miniature sanguine rivers away from the prostitute's annihilated body. I stared incredulously at the mass of innards that I had exposed and separated at Colleen's midsection, effectively splitting her open. Suddenly, my line of vision became oddly hazy. It was as if I had drunk too many shots of liquor, and my memory was just beginning to fade. I had difficulties remembering exactly what I did next. I do recall getting in my car, but not the trip that I took from the warehouse to my car. Driving was almost too easy. I could feel Castor pushing the movements of my hand, ensuring my safety. And back at the house... I removed and threw away my soiled clothing before finally slipping into bed and falling asleep. When I awoke the next morning, the events of the last night could have been nothing more than a bad dream. I remembered snatches of events here and there, Colleen's laughter, the cool feel of the axe in my hand and the delight that I experienced, but it seemed to then that those things could have been nothing more than old memories resurfacing. I never would have guessed that I had committed cold-blooded murder and gotten away with it, and even liked it. I had woken up with one of the worst headaches of my life and stayed in bed throughout the early morning. Finally, when I went to cut on the news, I saw the story of my little crime on the television, and only then did everything come back to me. Afterwards, I locked myself in my bedroom and curled into a corner. My hands were in my face and tears of pure terror were squeezing themselves through my fingers. I was very afraid. I was afraid that I would be caught by the police, scared that I would have to live out the rest of my life in prison, and then, if not that, I would have to murder one person each year to ensure my own safety. And most of all, I was scared of myself. The idea that I had snuffed out the life of another living, breathing human being was shocking and painful. But what made it worse was how much I had treasured it. Could I have indulged in such violence? I sat there for a long time, thinking in my shell of misery and dread. Was it really worth it? Was it worth having someone's blood on my hands so I could have one more year of my life? The woman I had murdered was nothing more than a prostitute and a lawbreaker. She'd probably had a very dismal life. Was she more important than me? No. Most certainly not. But the question still begged. 
Did that make what I did right? Every part of my brain was telling me no, and what I did was completely immoral and wrong, but was it really? I remember the night of the bowling alley with Carl and Diane. I remember the strong feelings of love and compassion. Yes, I finally decided. It is worth it. The weeks that followed were tainted with the aftermath of my brutal execution. The story itself was broadcasted all over the news. A killing with this degree of ruthlessness was uncommon in the city of Raleigh. One reporter even went as far as to compare it to the Black Dahlia murders. Everyone was talking about it. However, much to my surprise, the case remained a mystery. According to the news, the police were able to obtain fingerprints, but when they ran it through the scanners, there wasn't a match. This puzzled me for a good long while until I realized that the reason why they weren't finding my fingerprints was because I had turned into a different person entirely on the night of April the 4th. Castor had, in a way, possessed me and in turn changed my DNA as well as my nature. It was at this point when my mental health began to decline drastically. At every moment of the day, whether I was having lunch with Diane and her friends from her book club or sweeping the floor of my kitchen, I felt strangely on edge. Nothing could be quite right for me anymore. There was always something off-putting about every situation. A sudden noise or really anything in nature was sure to make me jump. I had blurry split-second visions of Colleen's eradicated body out of the corner of my eye. But every time I looked, there was nothing there. I felt the urge to stay at home, though I knew that wouldn't be necessary. Worst of all were the nightmares. Every night when I crawled into bed, I knew that I was subjecting myself to a realm of horror where any kind of twisted, frightening occurrence was possible. Sometimes I woke up screaming. But the wickedest ones were the dreams where I was unable to say anything at all. A specific dream that was rooted itself into my mind was a phantasm in which I was Colleen. I was the one lying down on the cold concrete floor as a figure above that could only be John Carnegie approached me leisurely swinging his axe by his side. I would try to get up, but my legs felt like they were made of lead. Or still was my inability to call for help. My throat felt like it was made of sandpaper as I rasped desperately, trying with every last bit of gathered strength I had to call for help. The head of the axe would be raised through the air, and before it came crashing down, I would catch a glimpse of John's face, obscured in shadow. The most visible features were the eyes, which gleamed yellow with a hate and malice. The nightmare would always end with an axe inches from my exposed torso before a jolt of panic would awaken me. Also, there was the depression. Every second of enjoyment I could have was cut short by the overwhelming emotion of pure sadness. Or, to put it more accurately, emptiness. Nothing that I did had any real value anymore. I was doing things in my life only to do things, if that makes any real sense. Because of this, I found myself not really wanting to take action. Eventually, at some point along the line, I realized that nobody was going to help me. Diane knew that something was very much wrong. She could sense my feelings, but couldn't exactly tell what my triggers were. 
She asked me what was wrong and I would deny her. Making up a petty excuse about an argument or work or a story that I had read in the newspaper that saddened me. So I found it within myself to be the help I needed. I started to spend more and more time with my family. And unsurprisingly, things got better for me. Was I ever really the same again? No, not quite. Diane knew it, although she never brought it up. But something had changed inside me, made me a bit wiser. I did get to take Carl and Diane to Disney World. Our trip, although it was short, is definitely one of my favorite memories. We stayed there for three days, sleeping in the Wilderness Lodge in the hours of nightfall, and spending the day in the world-renowned amusement park, Magic Kingdom. Diane's favorite ride was It's a Small World. Really, I think, due to the pleasant remembrances more than anything else. However, it proved a great excuse for me to have her head on my shoulder, and my arm wrapped around her snugly as the ride progressed. Carl's favorite ride, of course, was Space Mountain, which brought back many warm, fuzzy memories from my own childhood. For me, I think the best thing about it was, it wasn't any kind of ride. It was seeing the expressions of joy on the face of my wife and kid, as I am sure many fathers can relate. Watching Carl's eyes light up as he toured the haunted mansion could easily top any attraction that was there in its supposed world of dreams. It looked like there was hope for me yet. Through the terrible deed that I had sown and the trauma that it had inflicted on my brain, I could still live a happy life. There was no need for me to drudge in the dark underbelly of despair when there were things to be done, sights to be seen, and joys to be experienced. I did, after all, get to see Carl's first day of middle school. He was understandably nervous of his new placement. Minutes before the bus pulled onto the curb of our street, I felt the tug on my sleeve, and he was standing there, looking more anxious than ever. Hey, Dad, he half-whispered. Is it okay if I talk to you for a second? <laughs> sure, son. I replied, letting him drag me into the living room, safe from the ears of his mother. Carl sat down on the couch, his face already beginning to go red. At once I understood what was going on. Carl had a crush, and now he wanted to talk to me about it. I bit my lip hard, keeping a smile from coming on. I myself had experienced this firsthand when I was a boy, and to see it mirrored in the face of my son was just as amusing as it was amazing. Dad, there's this girl down the street named Rosanna. I watched her move in three weeks ago, and I, I really want to talk to her, but I can't, I can't get out of the courage. She's really pretty, and she seems so nice, but I don't want to seem like a jerk in front of her. Do you think you could help me out? I smiled at Carl reassuringly, in an attempt to gloss over the fact that his face had now turned a dark shade of magenta. <laughs> you know, Carl, when I was your age, I felt the exact same way and what you're going through now. I had a bit of a crush on this girl named Clarissa. Did you ever go out with her? Yeah. Briefly, I lied, cringing inwardly. But she eventually moved to New London or some other place down south. In any case, I'm sure this Rosanna girl will like you. You have your mother's looks after all. He didn't look any less relieved. Dad, I'm also scared my grades are going to go down. I hear in middle school they give you tons more work. Well, 
I'm going to give it to you straight, Carl. Middle school is hard, and making the transition to middle school is also hard. But the thing is, since you already knew it was going to be hard, your brain prepared you for it. You're going to ace this, and you didn't even know it. You think so? <laughs> I know so. Remember, I was once your age too. With that, our conversation was dismissed, and Carl ran down to the bus stop. His confidence renewed. Entry 5. Alleyways, Obituaries, and More Murder My happiness was cut short when April came again. I had been dreading the moment when Castork would once again summon me to his will. All too soon. The day came and I would fall asleep as a loving man with a moral compass and wake up a vicious, sadomasochistic murderer. I decided I wasn't going to fall asleep at all. I was going to wait for Gastor. Whilst Diane fell asleep beside me, I sat there, eyes wide open in the darkness, not moving a muscle. The hours ticked by agonizingly slow, but my heart was pounding all the while. I was sick on my stomach, my form in a straight line in the bed, fists clenched tight and sweating in my nightclothes. Then, at two in the morning, I felt Castor enter my room. I didn't see him, but his overwhelming company was definitely there. All the noises from outside, including the shrill chirp of crickets and the forlorn bark of a dog, suddenly ceased to exist. The temperature plummeted and the air became thick, a dull pounding deeper than that of my own heart began to resonate within my chest. I lay still, unmoving in the darkness. I could actually feel the evil seeping into my skin. It would have to be something that you were looking for, but I felt it very acutely. It was the subtle slithering of something alien making its way into your pores and circulating into your bloodstream. My whole body shuddered, and then a smile crept across my face. Shortly afterwards, I was prowling into one of Raleigh's many deserted alleyways, axe leisurely swinging by my side as I whistled Bernard Herman's twisted nerve to myself, just like before. I wasn't exactly sure who it was that I was looking for. I only followed the instructions of the beast who whispered in my ear. I paid no mind to the puddles that I stepped in only searching with my eyes straining in the darkness to see someone or something worth my interest. In the feeble light that the street lamps cast into the dark corners of the narrow pathway, I caught sight of a woman lying in an assortment of flattened cardboard boxes. She looked to be about 40 years of age or so, but was most definitely homeless. Her long curly gray hair was matted and greased on top of her oily head. The wrinkles on her face stood out, and her legs were so skinny that they could have been nothing more than broomsticks. And when I was right before her, I stopped, hiding the axe behind my back with one hand before proceeding to prod her awake with the toe of my shoe. She lifted her head, blinking tiredly with eyes that matched her hair. I stood there, motionless, as this stranger looked up at me. For the longest time, neither of us said a word. Then the woman broke the silence, saying, Who are you? What do you want? Every time she spoke, I could see teeth that had been stained away with methamphetamine. Why did you wake me up? 
She rasped crouchily, imploring for some answer. In response, I laughed with scorn before taking out the axe from behind my back. The woman, who I am to know tomorrow in the news by the name of Mary Ann Lewis, scrambled to her feet, backing up with abrupt fear. Pouncing like a cat, I sprung forward, swinging with all my might. She made an attempt to run, but not before my axe buried itself into her thigh. She was seriously wounded, trying to get away by dragging her crippled leg, leaving behind a trail of vitality. She screamed with pain and begged for someone to help her, but the night was unforgiving. It would seem that Castor had blocked off this particular street to the rest of the world, leaving me and this poor homeless woman to our business. She made the mistake of looking behind her to see if I was drawing any closer. Taking advantage of her mistake, I pitched forward with the flat of my axe, connecting the harsh end of the whip into her lower jaw. I felt a great burst of satisfaction as I heard the bone break. Her cries became garbled, and she swallowed her teeth in blood, and again, my peals of bitter laughter echoed off the walls of the surrounding buildings. I took my precious time bringing the axe behind my shoulder and walking slowly behind Mary Ann as she struggled to escape. Right when she was inches from an unlikely salvation of the street, I finally destroyed the last ray of hope that she had by slashing downwards, cutting into her back, and effectively knocking her down to the ground. With some difficulty, she turned over and looked at me with desperation as she raised one trembling hand, as if to protect her wasted figure. Her cheeks were swollen horribly and her mouth had transformed into a yawning black hole at the bottom of her face, which leaked blood. She tried to say something, a word of pity perhaps, but trying to talk was impossible with the way I had fractured her jaw. I gazed at her in satisfaction for several minutes as she made her pathetic efforts to speak. At this point she was too weak to try and crawl away and her only option left was to beg for mercy. I turned my back on her for a mere second, letting her think that I was going to allow her to live after all. Then, in a sudden whirlwind of spit and bloodlust, I turned and struck with the axe a final time, swiftly cracking her skull and cleaving her head open, leaving a crevice from which her brain matter spilled. And just like before... My world became fuzzy and blurred as I re-entered my car and drove home. I got to my house, disposed of my sullied clothes, and slipped into bed before closing my eyes and descending into a deep slumber. The next morning, the only thing that the news would broadcast was the discovery of a brutally murdered homeless woman who had died in the exact same way as Colleen Simpson a year before. The estranged family of Marianne had been able to identify her only by the eagle tattoo on her left hip. This death, if anything, was even more broadcast than the first of my short line of slayings. The reason for this being that the two women who were both societal outcasts had been killed on the same day a year apart. The police made a statement in which they said that the suspect must have been a lone murderer who had a special connection with the date of April the 4th. However, what I remember most about that morning was not the news itself. It was the obituaries. I was flipping through my newspaper, 
half-heartedly chewing on my cereal when I ran across the obituaries page. A sudden interest overcame me. I scanned the page with interest, but found nothing of the death of Marianne Lewis. Her story was deemed strictly for the front page. I left the house about 30 minutes later under the pretense of returning an overdue library book. I was not completely lying. My copy of Pearl Books, The Good Earth, had been lying under my bookshelf for the better part of a month. However, when I mounted the steps of my local library, my true intentions were a bit more personal. I went directly to the librarian sitting behind the front desk and asked her if I could take a look at the newspaper here in Raleigh exactly one year ago. Minutes later, I was reading the obituary of Colleen Simpson. There was nothing in the few short paragraphs written about her to even suggest that she was a prostitute. Instead, there were the obligatory dates and the times for the funeral before a delving into the, of the personal life of Colleen that I had never known. Apparently, this was a woman with a loving family. She always had a warming smile and a kind word. She let no obstacles in her life overtake her. She was always steadfast and resilient in her happiness. She was also a firm believer in Christianity, at least according to the writer of the article. Reading the obituary gave me plenty of mixed emotions to consider. I had thought of Colleen previously as nothing more than absolute filth. The fact that she had a life outside prostitution stuck me as oddly disturbing. Part of what had made it easier for me to cope with the principle that I had killed her was that she wasn't the prime definition of innocence. But now I had to contemplate the fact that she had a family. Maybe. Just maybe. She had a kid. Perhaps even a kid like Carl. As I mulled over this idea, a wave of guilt washed over me, which I hurriedly pushed out of my mind. I couldn't concern myself with that which was already done, and that which was unavoidable. However, I wouldn't feel my guilt to the fullest extent until a year later, when I killed Sally Everhart and Amber Walterson. Twelve long months had passed, and the foreboding midnight hour of April the 4th had once again cast an opaque shadow on my ordinary life. I was crouching in one of the darker corners of Raleigh's alleyways, axe gripped tightly in my hands. The only sound was that of the rainwater making its slow downward trickle through the gutters. Tiny pellets of precipitation slid over my skin, but I was all but oblivious to them. My eyes were shut, and I was seeing with my ears. The closeness of the beast in my body seemed to enhance my hearing. I listened desperately. Someone would be coming by here soon. I knew it. And sure enough, I soon heard the sloshing of footfalls through puddles of water. Excitement began to build in my chest, the kind that I had only experienced twice before. I edged my way around the alley, getting closer to the mouth of my hiding place, continuing to listen. I heard laughter coming from not one, but two persons. I felt a demented grin write itself across my face. Two souls would rot by the deeds of the beast tonight. The footfalls and voices grew nearer, and I readied myself, lifting the deadly axe, preparing to strike down whoever dared come on my way. The voices became closer, 
and closer. The time was right. I had to act now. I leaped out in front of the pathway of two unsuspecting young girls. One of them was a tall blonde with high cheekbones, blue eyes, and an expression of shock that quickly gave way to terror as she caught sight of the weapon raised high over my head. The other was a light brunette in dark clothing who let out a scream of horror before my axe slashed downwards, cutting off her scream and ripping into her throat. The blonde started to run before losing her balance in the slippery dampness of the sidewalk and falling forward. She was quick to scramble to her feet as I dislodged my axe from the collarbone of the brunette and gave chase. Then, something unexpected happened. The presence of the beast suddenly vanished. The cloud of wickedness had all but disappeared in a fraction of a second. No longer was I a man doing what was right for his family. I was now a monster who was about to commit murder. The girl in front of me wasn't a contamination who deserved death, but rather a human being who had an entire life ahead of her just waiting to happen. And what was I about to do? I was about to cut off and cut short that line. And for what? My own welfare? Just so that I could live a little bit longer before I would have to do this again? These thoughts stopped me in my tracks for a mere moment, and the blonde gained a few yards on me. Then I thought of Diane, and of Carl, and how painful it would be to leave them. I resumed my chase once more, although my heart was screaming for me to stop. What I did next can absolutely be considered as the most selfish act I have ever committed. Although the girl ahead of me feared for her life, I was more athletic and caught up to her rather quickly. The first swing, I managed only to scrape her back, and she ran more incautiously than ever before finally tripping over the uneven pavement of the sidewalk and sprawling headfirst into the ground. With her ankle now injured, she turned to look up at me, pleading for her life. I had been in this exact same situation when I had murdered Marianne, but this time it was different. All of my emotions were intact, and I was unsure of whether or not this was really what I wanted. This girl was no older than 18 at best. She probably had parents that were worrying about her, checking their watches anxiously and wondering why she had decided to stay out so late. Parents that would attend the funeral of their girl and probably grieve for years to come. As the girl weakly held up a hand, continuing to solicit me, a prospect hit me that I had not considered. What if something like this were to happen to Carl? I couldn't even imagine the heartbreak that I would have to go through. And then I remembered. I was doing this partially for Carl. And with tears streaming down my face, I squeezed my eyes shut and swung the axe a final time. Entry 6. The Downward Spiral A serial killer is defined as a person who murders over three individuals of a period of more than a month. And just like that, I had transcended into a whole new level of immorality. The press even gave me a nickname. And while Ed Ginn was the Mad Butcher and Jeffrey Dahmer was the Milwaukee Cannibal, 
I was the reaper of Raleigh. The brunette Sally Everhart and the blonde Amber Walterson were the two final victims required to cement myself as the unknown killer who was striking terror in the heart of urban North Carolina. My mental health was once again deteriorating rapidly. Strong emotions of guilt followed me wherever I went. There was no shaking them off. They were forever there, in my mind, persisting with their devastating effects. Depression tore away at my being. I had difficulty with chores such as remembering and concentrating. Making decisions was suddenly a burden. My energy was all but depleted. I was always wary, like there were weights bearing down on my eyelids, convincing me to just stop whatever I was doing and take a nap until the end of time. And I did sleep often, probably too much for my own good. On the rare occasion that I was awake, I was irritable and couldn't even enjoy the company of my family. I had dug myself into a hole so deep that not even Diane or Carl or anyone for that matter could pull me out. Pleasurable pursuits such as sex with Diane were now boring. I almost never ate anything and my weight was decreasing pound by pound. Headaches were an everyday affair and all traces of any form of jubilation were diminished. I stopped going to work every day. Phone calls from my boss became more and more frequent, but I never answered them and eventually I was fired. It wasn't like I really cared, though. Diane could make us more than enough money by herself. Each painting that she sold earned us a few thousand dollars, and she was more than capable of pumping them out fairly quickly. We would live on. Diane realized that something was horribly wrong. One day she woke me up, sat me down, and reluctantly began to tell me some of her darker thoughts. John... Something needs to be done here. You are in a serious state of despair. You always sleep, you're never happy, and you've been fired from your fucking job, and frankly, I'm worried about you. The best course of action at this point is probably to see a psychologist or a doctor. I let out an involuntary scoff. <laughs> Diane, there's no need to worry about me. I'm fine. Really, I am. I just need some time to think things over. That's all. She persevered, much to my increased annoyance. You're lying and you know it, John. Please, I'm begging you, see a doctor. I'm not going to do that, Diane. John, just humor me here. See a doctor. Right then, something inside me just snapped and I began to yell, much to Diane's distress. I don't need to go see any fucking doctor, but I swear to God, if you don't leave this room right fucking now, then you might have to soon. And with tears in her eyes, she left the room. My fit of rage with Diane only deepened the hole, though I apologized later and truly felt remorse within all my heart what I had done. I knew things would never quite be the same with us again. I became a worthless, helpless creature that lived in a cave of my own bedroom. I seldom came out, only existing under the covers, sleeping my wife away, and making everything I had ever known non-existent. Then, one night, I had a dream. A dream that, as it turned out, 
would poison my routine of lethargy. In my nightmare, I was back where it all started, in a car heading for a traffic intersection with a yellow light. I already knew what was going to happen, even in my vivid fantasy. I tried to remove my foot from the gas pedal, but it was impossible. I struggled, jerking my leg violently, but it was as if my ankle were being held down by an immovable, invisible clamp, and my foot stayed firmly on the gas as I inched closer and closer to the light, even as it turned red. Then, I was there, in the dead center of the intersection, and my car suddenly lurched to a stop. I mashed my foot down on the gas, this time wanting to move, but the tires only spun. I didn't budge a single millimeter. Then the bright flash of headlights lit up the interior of my vehicle. I turned my head, oogling at the car that was barreling towards me at breakneck speeds. I looked into the windshield and for a split second, I saw the driver. Castor was gripping the wheel tightly, bearing down on me with an expression of depraved insanity. His cloak of scalps almost seemed to be crawling, and in a jolt of terror, I awoke. All too soon, my problem went from getting too much sleep to getting too little. I didn't want to fall into the seduction of slumber, only be terrified by nightmares of the past. I had to find something else to replace sleep, something that could assuage my mental problems and soothe my soul. And for the first time in months, I emerged from my house and got into my car with a new sense of purpose. I had to find something to help me. I drove into Raleigh and looked around for anything, really, that could fix what needed to be mended. Ultimately, I found myself standing in front of a bar. Every once in a while, someone would go in and out, and I would be greeted by a whiff of whiskey and the laughter of men inside as they socialized. I had allowed myself to drink heavily only once in my life, and I ended up regretting it. I was 27 years old, and my father had just died of a severe stroke. In my misery, I had stumped into a bar, much like this one, to wash away my worries in the flood of scotch and Jack Daniels. Alcoholism was something that ran in my family, so I knew what I was doing and knew it to be a mistake. But I simply couldn't help myself. The bittersweet liquid always did its job right. No questions asked. And so I kept pouring it down my throat. Night after endless night until Diane had stopped me. She had made me sit down, looked me in the eye, and beseeched me to please stop. It had taken a considerable amount of effort, and I even went through some of the frightening symptoms of withdrawal, but Diane had asked me to stop, and so I did. I went from four beers a day to three, to two, and finally one, before I was able to stop completely. This time... A simple request from my wife simply wasn't enough to cause me to quit. It wasn't that I didn't love her, because I did. I just needed something to take away the pain, and I felt like this was the only option. I loved Diane, even through the point in which I yelled at her, and that's why my shame of the moment was so great. I went into the bar, dug a 20 out of my wallet, and began to drink. Six shots later, my vision was going blurry. I was finding it difficult to manage my balance, and I was beginning to get dangerously drunk. I couldn't say that I loved my new environment, but the way I saw it, 
being drunk and watching a football game in the world of vodka and martinis certainly beat muddling around in my own self-pity. I worked my life into a new endless routine. Get up, go to the bar, get drunk, come home, fall asleep, and then repeat the process once I got up in the morning. Months passed by. My addiction to alcohol only increased tenfold. I made friends at the several bars that I regularly attended, who hailed my arrival every time I walked in and ordered my first Bloody Mary. Cards were dealt, gossip exchanged, and every once in a while we would play a drinking game, all of which I won. All my new friends were aware of my alcohol consumption. They claimed I drank religiously, and I suppose to a degree, they were correct. I had a new home away from home, the many various pubs and taverns that Raleigh had to offer. I tried to stop myself at a couple of points. Really, I did. I knew that I was tearing my family apart one drink at a time, but stopping was simply impossible. It seemed that my body could not function properly without some form of ethanol in its system. If I tried to go a single day without driving out to Raleigh and grabbing a quick drink, I would find myself there tomorrow, as if pulled there by some magnetic force, wasting away at the tartarest of tequilas. Diane didn't ask me to stop. She was scared of me. She hadn't forgotten the evening in which I unleashed my anger. I came to the conclusion that she had said something to Carl about it, because my relationship with him was practically non-existent. He became less of a son and more of a person who happened to live in the same house as me. I think that I was trying to kill myself even then. There was a dark hope deep inside of me that maybe, if I was lucky, I would one day start to feel the ache in my side that signified alcohol poisoning. Eventually, I realized that I no longer wanted to live. So I made a plan of action. I sent Carl and Diane away on a much-needed long visit to their grandparents' house. Then I went to the pawn shop and purchased a 44 snub-nosed revolver and drove out to this motel. I can't stand the possibility of Diane having to find my rotting corpse when she returns home. The thought of this is intolerable. I've disgusted her enough already, what with being a drunken pig most of the time, and I won't do it a final time. As soon as I arrived, my first thought was to write a note, an explanation, however long so that way Diane and Carl would know that I am not insane. So, I went into the gift shop and picked up this very journal that I am writing in now. I have been delaying my undeniable death, but I can't for very much longer. Before I do go, however, there is one thing I would like to say. One last thought I need to scribble down before the taste of cold metal of my forty-four muzzle. I've had plenty of time to think about this short period over the last six days. When I'm not writing, I'm thinking, after all. And out of all of this, one thought, one clear question has risen. Why did I go to hell in the first place? I never did anything all too terrible, did I? I was just an ordinary person when this all began. I was far from a criminal or even just an ordinary asshole. I was a normal person. Sure, I hadn't done anything significantly good, but it wasn't like I did anything terrible either. Why would I, of all people, go to hell 
after briefly dying in my crash? There's only one answer. Since God no longer cares for us, and since he would be willing to let me, an ordinary man, rot in the depths of hell. I don't think it would be too far from a stretch to say that we all go to hell. The good, the bad, the in-between. Once we die, we are doomed to suffer forever until the end of time. So to all of those reading this, including Carl and Diane, I'll see you someday. Maybe even someday. Soon. <laughs>